Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, and today it is two priests and a rabbi explore Exodus because we are joined by Maggie Lighthizer Stoddard. Hi, Maggie. Hi. Uh, do that with gusto. With gusto. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> was that better? Uh, that was better. That would okay. be too much gusto. Okay. All we, right. We are, uh, we're, we're going to edit this, so no worries. I don't know. Wonderful. I sort of like this. I feel like this could all stay in right here. Okay, yes. fine. Uh, and also, uh, I am Carl Stevens. I am the other priest. I And I am Daniel Bogard, the lone and lonely rabbi on this podcast today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that also will be your new Twitter handle, the lonely rabbi. The lonely rabbi. I uh, like that. Yes. Yes. Except you will have to then make up um, uh, song spoofs like the lonely planet. I was going to say. So it's, yeah. For your new life. <laughs> I like this. I can, in fact, release depressing travelogues. <laughs> Uh, today we are studying chapter six of Exodus, uh, which I bet is nobody's favorite chapter of this book. Uh, Daniel and Judaism is this is this when pe- we get to chapter six, do people jump up and down with glee? I I mean I do every year when we read this. It's just excitement that we've reached chapter six. I no, I'll tell you actually one of the interesting things here is that in the Jewish division of text. Chapter six doesn't exist. Hmm, uh, really? Yeah. The, the first verse of chapter six is uh, included with the previous, uh, uh, the previous reading. Uh, and then the last couple verses of chapter six are included with the next reading. Uh, as well, we break up the, uh, you know, as we'll see here, we've really got two halves to chapter six. We've got this sort of conversation with God and Moses uh, and the people, and then we have this uh, genealogy, and that gets totally broken up as well. Well, that's that's interesting, um, just because I, I find, and I know a lot of people find, that chapter divisions in the Bible seem very arbitrary at times, and it seems like that first verse of chapter 6 is clearly a response to what came before. So I would wonder, why why is this verse 1 of chapter 6? Totally. Totally. And if you look at the end of chapter six, we have the same thing uh, where all of a sudden we move out of this priestly material and we get, I don't know, three, four verses yeah. uh, of conversation that wh- I don't know why they got tagged on. Right, right. It's very strange. Does any, Do either of you know anything about how the chapters originally got put in here? Not me. I know nothing. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I have a, a vague memory of having heard about this in rabbinical school, and that's about all I remember. Well, given that we know nothing, we are the the best people to lead you, dear listener, through this wonderful chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we plunge into it? Um, Maggie, would you start reading for us uh, sure. and tell us what translation are you using? Sure. I'm Right now I have in front of me the Common English Bible. Um, which is one of my favorite translations. You want me to just read verse one or what? Well, what we generally do is uh, we just start reading and read until we're interrupted. Oh, okay. I'll do that. (laughs) But Maggie, before the call, you had uh, quite the observation about this translation from our previous chapter. Maybe you could offer that for uh, everyone. Well, yes, it was highly amusing, at least to me. Um, I flipped to chapter six in my common English Bible. And of course, on on the top of my page here is part of chapter five and it's verse 17 of chapter five. And I really like this translation. It says, 
Pharaoh replied, you are lazy bums, nothing but lazy bums. And I like that. Just the, the translation there, lazy bums. Um, I think it, it, it speaks to me. (laughs) (laughs) So we could expect more salty language from your Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. That might be the highlight. I feel like Pharaoh's responding in tweets. We should have hashtags. Yes, exactly. Yes. And we can put it on a t-shirt. Okay. Here's chapter six. The Lord replied to Moses. Now you will see what I'll do to Pharaoh. In fact, he'll be so eager to let them go that he'll drive them out of his land by force. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I didn't reveal myself to them by my name, the Lord. Okay, let's pause here for a second. Okay. So wait, oh, what is the deal with all of these different names of God? What, what does Christian tradition say about this? What is made of this? Well, for for Christians, we, of course, uh, worship God in triune form. So we already have three names, which we go to all of the time. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a kind of obsessive need uh, to name God three ways. So even if we left behind the traditional Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we, we end up saying things like creator, redeemer, sustainer. What are some of the other ones, Maggie? Oh, gosh. I mean, you want me to just throw out names of God that we use? Yeah, sure. Um, Holy One. Um, let's see. You said you said Father. We say things like Heavenly Father a lot. Um, yeah. Most Merciful God. You know, we use these descriptors, and they sort of become names um, that sure. go along with the word God. Um, let's see. Yeah, they're attributive, so they tell us an attribute of God. Uh, we have, except for Jesus, well, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are, are more like proper names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus is obviously a proper name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Holy Spirit is sometimes also called the Advocate. Um, there's another name for the Holy Spirit, which I'm blanking on at the moment. Anyway, mm. does that answer so, your question? Well, I guess my, my question is also what's made of the distinction in these three Hebrew names for God that we encounter throughout the... Uh, Torah, right? We get this proper name of God that we're talking about here, this revealed name that was given at the burning bush, yud Hey vav Hey. this name uh, that Carl, you and I have been talking about is sort of the eternal, uh, but regardless, the proper name of God. Uh, then we've got the most common name we get for God, uh, the Hebrew word Elohim, which is uh, interestingly enough, the plural of the word for a God. Uh, and finally, we get this other phrase that occurs just a handful of times uh, in the Torah, but is referenced right here uh, in verse three, at least, El Shaddai, God of mm-hmm. Shaddai, whatever that means. Um, yeah. Is there anything made my of the translation, distinction between these three? Well, my translation has a little footnote that says God of the mountain. Oh, interesting. Huh. Okay. Wow. I I don't think we make any any distinction between the the three. Do, uh, have you ever witnessed a distinction, Maggie? Not really, and I think it's interesting um, that we we sort of smush it all together, and we we just we accept that there are these different names, but that there's no significance to when one or another is used. And I think that probably, I mean, looking at the scripture probably can't be true, but we don't spend much time or energy investigating that. (laughs) Right. 
So interestingly, the Jewish tradition, we make a distinction between Adonai, this proper name of God, yod heh and Elohim, with the idea that one of these denotes the aspect of God that is merciful, and one of these denotes the aspect of God that is judgmental. Ah. Uh, and there becomes this idea that the world requires both, but that God's core prayer, and we have this whole scene, I think we talked about this in an earlier uh, episode, Carl, but there's this whole crazy scene uh, in the Talmud where we're told that God is praying and the rabbis want to know what it is that God is praying. Uh, and God's prayer there is that God's aspect of mercy uh, may hold sway over God's aspect of judgment. That's fascinating. And I think that's really interesting because we, I think as Christians, at least some of us tend to, tend to have this um, ongoing back and forth of, is God merciful? Is God judgmental? And it depends on where we are in scripture, right? And, and which God are we dealing with right now? Which um, presentation of God are we dealing with? And, and the idea that they're, they're both there, they're both aspects of the one God. Um, I think that's incredibly illuminating for us. Carl, what do you think? Uh, I think we have more trouble with the merciful version of God than with the judgmental version of God, uh, because we have trouble showing mercy ourselves. That's true. And we oh, tend to... so interesting. Yeah, and we tend to apply that at least... Okay, I'll speak for myself. I tend to apply that merciful stuff to Jesus, right? That's his, that's his um, wheelhouse, you know? So, <laughs> so he, he represents that for me in God. Um, and, and so maybe, maybe, uh, the idea of those being both parts of creator God, um, are, you know, this is something that could be, I think, rehabilitative for me. Hmm. Right. I, huh. you know, to, to go in a slightly different direction here for a moment, uh, so I, I think it's interesting. I really believe that if we included a rabbi who was two generations older than me, uh, I'm in my thirties. So, uh, uh, you know, someone in their seventies, uh, I think that person would have a lot of anxiety with this conversation. Oh, uh, interesting. That for past generations, I don't think it's so true anymore, but for past generations of Jews, there was this real sense that a classic Christian critique of Judaism is that ours is a God entirely of judgment and without mm -hmm. mercy or love. I'm not sure this is a critique we hear anymore. I certainly haven't encountered it in interfaith circles. But I do know that oftentimes when conversations go in this direction, older rabbis in particular will get anxious and say, no, 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 we can't say these things. We can't have these kinds of conversations or we will be accused of um, these sort of classic critiques. Well, I think, I mean, it makes that concern, that anxiety makes sense to me. And I think it is um, an assumption, an inaccurate assumption that is still out there. And, and I see it reflected, Carl, I don't know if you can relate to this, but um, when pe in discussions about these kinds of texts that are um, not that are taken out of context. So you can take, you know, a few chapters or a few verses of something, like for example, from Exodus. And if you're, if you're not considering that 
in light of sort of the entire history of God and God's people, right? And you're just looking at, well, God seems really mean right here. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that that is a, that is something that happens frequently when, when Christians especially look at scriptures in what we would call the Old Testament and we don't see the full context and we don't see, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's something that, that I think really does happen. So that anxiety would make perfect sense to me. Well, and I also think that it might be a question of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, what if we were to say, not a God of judgment, but a God of justice, mm-hmm. right? Um, for for Christians, for the majority of, a, of American history and Western history, we have been in the position of privilege and therefore less concerned about justice because we get justice just by living, breathing, and walking around. Um, So what we really want is is mercy for the things we do wrong. But I I think now at this moment, a God of justice uh, is becoming increasingly appealing, right? Like, I mean, it's all such a version of God has always been appealing to people who weren't in positions of privilege. But at least for me, uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer that I need to spend time praying to that God in contemplation of that God in relationship with that God, if I too am to be just. Um, and I have to kind of accept that sometimes those judgments are going to be, uh, they're going to be directed against me. Carl, that is really fascinating. And you, what you just said, um, sort of caused this little uh, light bulb in my brain, but I'm thinking about my admittedly limited experience in the black church. But I think that my, as I said, limited experience in the black church, uh, the, the preachers and theologians that I've encountered that come from that tradition tend to be able to illuminate um this aspect of God that we're talking about that we might call judgment or we might call justice in a way that um, is entirely different from this sort of um, pitiful, <laughs> pitiful attempt that we in the white church tend to do. And I think that goes back to your, your statement about privilege. And we will uh, next week and the week after, hopefully, if, if our technology works out, have Robin Holland, who's a, an educator and an author and a member of St. Philip here in Columbus, which is a historically African-American parish. Uh, she'll be joining us on the podcast. And I'm really excited to hear her take on these questions. That's great. Yeah. So to jump back into the text here for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, because, again, I you know I think one of the interesting pieces here is uh, – that Jews don't actually, our God is not the God of the Bible. Our God is the God of the Bible as understood through all of these layers of commentary and discussion and time and history. Um, so to bring a couple of those uh, layers in here. Uh, so we have in verse two, this discussion with God and Moses, but the traditional commentaries bring a whole texture to this that has sort of a level of frustration that God has with Moses. Uh, Rashi brings up the idea uh, that actually God is calling Moses to task uh, here, that this whole section is a rebuke to Moses for not having faith in the people and for speaking poorly of the people, Um, which becomes really, I think, an idea of leadership, that leadership has to be representative, 
uh, and derives from the people rather than uh, sort of coming from on high, which is sort of interesting for God to be insisting on here. Um, but the other piece we've got is we've got a great little story that says that God's first response to having to deal with Moses uh, in this chapter is that God wishes that he could be dealing with Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or someone from the past who wasn't as much of a troublemaker mm-hmm. as uh, uh, Moses is portrayed as. Although, I mean, Abraham, you know, famously talks God out of destroying Solomon and Gomorrah, at least at first. So it's not like they were just patsies who were willing to roll over. Well, you know, maybe it's a bit of a selective memory here, too. I think maybe we do this with our own children, too, right? It's when when my youngest is being bad, it's much easier to remember my perfect older child than it is to uh, uh, remember <laughs> the reality of what my older child was like when he was four. Um yeah. Yeah, that 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 could be part of it. Um I also wonder in this, you know, in this lovely little story, don't don't we think Moses is somewhat justified? Like I guess I am feeling some qualms about the idea that Moses is just complaining and kvetching uh without any reason. I mean, poor guy, he didn't want to go on this mission in, in the first place. He goes on the mission, at first the people are with him, they very quickly turn against him. Things go worse for the people. He's got to be questioning himself, his leadership, uh his entire purpose here, and uh, God's response is to is not to listen to that, but to say, uh why can't you be like your your forefathers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I mean, what I'm seeing, and this is on a very superficial level, but it's, it's sort of like when you're trying to do something really important and you're frustrated because it's not happening quick enough and I'm going to blame you because you're not doing things well enough and you're going to blame me that I'm not doing my part well enough. And that's, you know, that's what I'm seeing here. That's this dynamic. Right. Finger pointing. Yes, yes. If you would pick it up, if you would do your job, then we could move this along, but you're not. Well, speaking of doing our jobs, we should probably return to the text. Uh, But Um, but before we do, one quick question, Daniel. So you said that that one of these names is for the the merciful aspect of God and the other is for the just or judgmental aspect of God. Which is which? I knew you were going to ask me a tricky question like that. Um, I am, let's call it 90% certain that the proper name of God is the name of mercy and that Elohim is the word that we use for judgment. Ah, okay. And El Shaddai is just a question mark. El Shaddai doesn't fall into this uh, sort of division that the Talmud makes there. Um, Instead, it's sort of seen as an earlier mystical name of God, the sorts of relational place kind of name that Jacob would have had, maybe, or Abraham would have had. Um, Because we really see a change here, right? Prior to this, God only seems to show up in the land of Israel. Right, it is a localized deity, which fits in a lot more with how these people would have understood the idea of a deity uh, as being related to a location. And here we get a God who is working not through location but through history. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Wow. Okay, moving on. I also set up my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as immigrants. I've also heard the cry of grief of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians have turned into slaves, 
and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am so the Lord. Let's pause here for a moment, actually. Sure. Um, so I, I think this final clause of verse five, I have remembered my covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think this is so interesting because God forgets. Yeah. Um, right. Is that the theology that we're taking from this? I guess that, that God forgets and God thinks of things and God needs to be reminded. Mm-hmm. And yet that, I think just that statement that God forgets would be very sort of threatening and unsettling to a lot of people, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, how are we to understand this idea of, you know, 400 some odd years of slavery other than God forgetting? Mm-hmm. And what is it that causes God to remember? So in verse five, it seems like for my translation, it's hearing the cry of grief of the Israelites that causes God to remember but haven't they been crying for that whole 400 years? I mean, that, again, that's distressing to think about. So a couple of weeks ago, Carl and I looked at a really sort of a heartbreaking commentary, I think, that said that, no, the Israelites had not cried out for generations and generations and generations because we had become so used to living this life of degradation wow. and deprivation that we had forgotten that life could be something other than this. And that it actually took Moses in Moses pointing out that it didn't have to be this way for us as a people to remember that it doesn't have to be this way and to throw up a cry uh, of objection. Wow. It's heartbreaking, but it's also beautiful in, in the, the idea of, of um, liberation as a, as sort of a collective, a collective effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it sure, I don't know, it hits a chord with me in terms of, you know, the people I know who have lived with abuse for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, or segments of society that have lived as the abused segment of society for generations. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in the Anglican tradition, I, probably other Christian traditions too, we have a fairly well-developed theology of absence, of God's absence, or not a theology, maybe a spirituality. I'm thinking particularly about poets, uh, some of whom who are not Anglican at all, but uh, like Gerard Manley Hopkins, who is a Catholic priest, um, who wrote uh, these series of sonnets, which were really all about the absence of God. So... I agree that this is might be a terrifying idea, but it's also an idea that we've dealt with that God may go far away from us for a while and then and then we come again into into moments of fullness in our experience of God. And to me that is a kind of remembering. The I'm looking at Rashi on this right now. Uh and Rashi looks at this contractually, because of course we have this word covenant here, right? That mm-hmm. uh, uh King James uh, the translation turns breed into covenant, uh, but just as good of a translation, I think is contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Rashi's really looking at this as a matter of contractual law, uh, or to say it differently, God only intervenes once God, w- once the Israelites raise that clause of the contract. 
Um, uh, that that might be the my least favorite way of thinking about our <laughs> relationship with God. Yeah, though the, what it does do is it creates a dynamic that really values the role of human initiative yes. in our world. Yes, and becomes a model whereby it is our role to bring God and thus holiness into our world by standing up and reminding God of God's promises. Mm -hmm. This world is not the world that we were promised. I I certainly have a real sense of this is not the world that I promised my children that I would give them. Right. Um, I I think of that every time I do a baby naming, Mm -hmm. this is not the world that this baby deserves. Yeah. Um, and that that's how we bring God into the picture. So I don't know, Carl, does that redeem the uh, theology for you a little bit? Uh, it does in terms of our action. Um, I just don't know if I am comfortable with the idea that there is some kind of legal uh, binding which God makes to us. And I'm not comfortable with it because so much of Christian atonement theory uh, has been based upon that idea. Um, and I don't like mm-hmm. it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like, did Jesus die on the cross in order to trick Satan um, because God is totally just and, and therefore hum- humanity should be condemned and we should, Satan should get us, but, but Jesus is our escape clause in this horrifying contract. Like, I, I just can't accept that as, um, as a theology. So I, I guess that's where I, any, any kind of contract language raises my heckles mm. a little bit. Huh. Huh. And, the, and I would say that is the central, I don't even know if the word theology is quite the right word, but the, the central theological idea of Judaism, that we are in contract with God as a people, uh, in that the terms of that contract are the document that we're reading right now. Mm-hmm. Well, but it, contract or covenant, because I think many people would want to make a pretty profound distinction between those two. Ah, okay. Uh, I guess to me, the distinction I make is one's prettier. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I think the distinction I would make is one is, uh, an act of love. Um, and the other is an act of law. So, you know, like a, a marriage, uh, I think of as a covenant. Um, however it is all, I mean, there are legal ramifications to it, but, um, it is really about choosing again and again and again to remain within the relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's keep reading. Okay, um, verse 6. Verse 6, please. All right, here we go. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from e- Egyptian forced labor. I'll rescue you from your slavery to them. I'll set you free with great power and with momentous events of justice. I'll take you as my people, and I'll be your God. You will know that I, the Lord, am your God, who has freed you from from Egyptian forced labor. So to pause here for a moment, I have to say for uh, um, maybe any Jewish podcast listeners we have here, uh, this is a very familiar text from the Passover Seder. Uh, and we have four different verbs that are used in these, uh, verses. I will bring you out. I will save you. I will redeem you. And I will take you, uh, to myself. And this becomes 
the outline of the Passover Seder that we were supposed to go through sort of the emotional journey of these four uh, verbs. And so anyone who's been to a Passover Seder may not remember this so clearly. Uh, and one of the reasons you may not remember it is the other thing we derive from this four verbs is the commandment that you have to drink four full glasses of wine at the Passover Seder. Um, so that can be maybe the explanation for why we're not remembering this <laughs> as well. Um, but a- anything that we want to make out of this, uh, this idea that there are four distinct verbs here. I will bring out, I will save, I will redeem, and I will take you to myself. What's the distinction here? What is this a journey? Is this any thoughts? Hmm. Well, one seems practical and physical. I will bring out. Um, so there, and, and I like making that distinction because I think sometimes when we're talking spiritually or theologically, we leave the practical behind and we make ridiculous statements like, Mm. you know, you can be enslaved to another person, but free in the eyes of God. And therefore, you know, your, your physical enslavement doesn't matter. Um, and this clearly says, hell yeah, it matters. (laughs) This is part of the action. Um, so I, I find that really important, uh, that our, our physical selves and our worldly condition are not in any way divorced from our spiritual selves. Mm, nice. Uh, and our spiritual I'm, condition. you know, I'm struck by, um, I'm, I'm reading these lines over and over again and looking at these four verbs, um, and, and the action that it's sort of this, um, step one, step two, step three, step four. And it's, um, it's really, it it seems to me it's a beautiful um it's fulfillment to me it it's it's the fullest um uh expression and satisfaction of that covenant that that um contract if you want to say the um that all of these things are necessary parts of that um mm. and it's it's just it is, I've never focused on it before, but it is incredibly beautiful. And to think about what this would be taking one of them out, for example, um, what, what we'd be missing, what would be lacking in the fulfillment of that covenant or its, its expression. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, uh, you know, to sort of maybe combine what the two of you were saying here, I think oftentimes, at least for me, I think of the point of religiosity or I make the mistake of thinking that religiosity is about relationship to God, mm-hmm. right? This, this final verb, I will take you to myself. Um, and maybe that is an end stage on the path. But this is a really nice reminder that there are other pieces that have to go into that, that also are theological, that also are the realm of spirituality and religion, right? The, the actual bringing out from the physical state of oppression, yes. uh, the salvation, mm-hmm. uh, bringing you out of the mental state mm-hmm. of oppression. Uh, we have redemption, restoring us to a place of dignity. And only then, once we have physical security, once we have spiritual security, once we have dignity, can we be at a place where we can be in relationship with the divine. Right, right. So this week I read uh, an article or a blog post by Christina Cleveland on the On Being website. 
Um, and part of her point, she's a theologian of color. I think she teaches at Duke. Um, and she talked about how for people of privilege, we almost always have a spirituality of transcendence. Like we want just that four claws. I will take you to myself, right? Uh, we, we, when we think of God, we think of God as, as elsewhere. And our desire is to go to that elsewhere to be with God. Um, and her point was that, uh, for because of that, it's very hard for us to have a spirituality of hope in hard times. Um, because we're always, we're always looking for transcendence, for escape. We don't know how to find hope in the imminent, even if the imminent is exceedingly mm-hmm. difficult. Um, so we don't like have spiritual retreats where, for instance, you spend time meditating on, um, like, uh, polluted water sources, you know, um, because we just, we want to escape that whole thing. That's why we're going on retreat. And it was really powerful for me to read because my mother died last December and I've had a lot of kind of feelings of distance and absence and, uh, you know, moments of, uh, agnosticism, if not atheism, as I've struggled, uh, with her death. And reading that, I realized part of it is that all the spiritual resources I had available to me were resources of transcendence. I only knew how to look for God in, in the other, in otherness and the otherworldly. Um, and I, and I kind of wonder what it would be like if I had more spiritual resources that had to do with finding hope in the imminent, even if the imminent is tough. Mm -hmm. I'm Carl. I'm thinking of, um, what popped into my head was, uh, Jesus saying, you, I've gone ahead of you. I'm preparing a place for you and I will come and I will take you to myself and you know, the way to the place where I am going. Right. I mean, that's, that's this idea of, um, we, we have this safe place with God, but it's over there and we'll get there someday, but it's not right now. Um, and I'm looking at verse seven, uh, and, and this, I'll take you as my people, what my translation says, I'll take you as my people and I'll be your God, which is that, um, reunion motif, right? Um, that, that right relationship, that reunion with the divine, but doesn't necessarily have those same connotations of it's elsewhere. Hmm. In fact, the very opposite, because it goes on to right. say, I will bring you to the land that I raised my right. hand and pledged to give. So it's not elsewhere. Yeah. It's yeah. here. It's, um, there's the, the here and now is also sanctified. Okay. Shall we keep going? Sure. Um, yeah. da, 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 da. I'll, I'll start with the beginning of verse seven, which I know we already did. I'll take you as my people and I'll be your God. You will know that I, the Lord, am your God, who has freed you from Egyptian forced labor. I'll bring you into the land that I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as your possession. I am the Lord. So this is a nice reminder here, first of all, that the whole book of Exodus wasn't supposed to happen. Mm. Right? Mm. you, You read Genesis and... You know, at least if you read it uh, up until the Joseph story, uh, 
none of this was supposed to happen. There was a deal Abraham made with God where in exchange for being in relationship, Abraham's family would have land progeny and wealth, right? They would be as numerous as the stars in the skies and the the, the grains of sand on the shore. They would live in a land flowing with milk and honey. They would, none of this was supposed to happen. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet it does. And that's what verse eight is here for. I will bring you into the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? There is this real quality of, oh yeah, we got to get this back on track. And then going on, and Moses spoke thus to the Israelites, but they did not heed Moses out of shortness of breath and hard bondage. Hmm. What do we make of that? What, what, do, your, what do other translations Mine say? Mine says because of their complete exhaustion and their hard labor, which is very similar. I've got, uh, but when Moses told this to the Israelites, they would not listen for their spirits had been crushed by cruel bondage. Wow. So Pharaoh's plan is working. Yeah. Pharaoh is successfully making them too tired. To well, think and about. that is exactly, I mean, that goes back to the four verbs, right? That, that, um, some of these things have to happen, uh, for these people before, uh, the, the real liberation can take place. Um, if that makes sense, that, that there is this, um, enslavement, this crushing, of people's spirits, of their being. Yeah, yeah, a crushing of spirit that leads to even the crushing of the possibility of hope. Right. These are people who no longer believe that the future can be better. Wow, chapter six is super <laughs> depressing. <laughs> um, Let's see if it gets better. Should we go? Should we go on? Please. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Come, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he send off the Israelites from his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Look, the Israelites did not heed me, and how will Pharaoh heed me? I am uncircumcised of lips. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, and he charged them regarding the Israelites and regarding Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Uncircumcised of lips? Um, yeah, aral svatayim, uncircumcised of lips. Wow. Um, impeded speech is how this is normally translated. Mm-hmm. Um, Mine says, especially since I'm not a very good speaker. Right, right. Robert Alter's note uh, is that the metaphor of lack of circumcision, circumcision suggests not merely incapacity of speech, but a kind of ritual lack of fitness for the sacred task. So, so what Moses, I mean, Moses is really down on himself, right? He's saying, uh, look, I'm not good at talking and I'm not even, uh, spiritually fit to be doing Mm. anything. And that's where much of the Jewish commentary goes about Moses. There's a whole tradition, uh, maybe even the normative tradition that Moses does not have a speech impediment as we would normally consider, uh, a speech impediment that instead he has, um, some sort of spiritual impediment or internal impediment uh, that makes him feel unworthy to do this. I think that it's also interesting that we we just were to talk, talking about how um, they didn't listen because their spirits were crushed, right? Because of the slavery, because of all of this oppression. And yet Moses infers that 
at least in part, that it's because of him, right? It's, it's, he's not able to communicate well enough. He's not able to do this. And that's why they're not listening. That's very interesting to me. I, I, that he's internalized this at some level. I mean, you, you got to wonder as the obvious Israelite child being raised in Pharaoh's palace, how he was treated and how he was spoken of and how he understood his place. Well, and I think that's, it's just a general challenge of leadership, right? To, um, come up against the fact that many things are outside of our control and yet somehow think that it's our responsibility Mm -hmm. to control them, uh, and then feel bad when we fail in that, but we're always going to fail in that. All right. Let's get to the names to the, to, this is the part in Bible study. Uh, when I asked tonight, you know, who wants to read this section? Nobody will say yes. <laughs> and that is because there are all of these names. So uh, who wants to read this section, guys? I, do you want me to read it in Hebrew? That, that would be lovely. I think that would yeah. be amazing. I, I don't think it'll mean any less to our listeners in Hebrew than right. maybe yeah. it does in English. Um, so a, a couple words that you should know here. We'll do a little Hebrew lesson uh, so that you can listen. Uh, B'nai means children or sons. Uh, so sometimes that turns into v'nai. B's and V's sounds uh, are almost interchangeable in Hebrew. Uh, and any time you hear a word begin with v, a V sound, uh, we're dealing with the word and. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you the, the first line of 15 here. We have uvne Shimon and the sons of Shimon are uh, Yimuel the Yamin, so his name is Yamin, the V just says and Yamin. Ve'ochad, ve'yochin, ve'tzochar, ve'sha'ul, ben haknanit, so Sha'ul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Ela mishpachot Shimon, these are the families of Shimon. Ve'ela shmot b'nei Levi, so these are the children of Levi, letoldotam, their lineage. They are Gershon, Ukahat, Umararai, Ushne Chaye Levi, and Shavu Shloshim Muat Shana. So these are the span of Levi's life, 137 years. B'nei Gershon livnei v'shimi'i l'mishpachotam. These are the sons of Gershon. They are livni and shimei. Uvnei Kachat, the sons of Kachat, the children of Kachat, are Amram, v'yitzor, v'chevron, v'uziel, and the span of his life was 133 years. So the sons of uh, Merari are uh, Machli, Umushi, uh, uh, just two for him, uh, and these are their families. Uh, okay, and then we get into Moses's family. Ve'kach uh, Amram, that's Moses's dad, Ed Yochebet Dodato Lo Leisha. So. This actually gets into some controversy. We've got the mm-hmm. first meet here, I think. Uh, right? Amram, Moses' dad, took as his wife his father's sister. 
meaning Moses's mom is also his great aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, so so let, let's pause for a moment. What do we make of the fact that Moses, Aaron, and Miriam uh, are not just the products of what we would now call an incestuous relationship, but if you go ahead and read the rest of uh, the five books of Moses, they are the products of a uh, forbidden relationship. Well, uh, Daniel, you pointed out that there's uh, you, you gave us a midrash about this um, from Chikskuni? Uh, he, he. Whenever you see the ch, it's going to be uh, um, your chavruta practice there, right? Oh yeah, okay. Hichsuni. Well done. Hichsuni. Okay. Oh, who says? Why did God agree that the that a great man such as Moses should be the product of a marriage which is destined to be forbidden? After the giving of the Torah, marriage with one's aunt is regarded as incestuous. Because no man is appointed as an authority over the community unless there is something objectionable in his past, lest he lorded over the community. So the rabbi's answer is, uh, this is a necessary imperfection. That good leaders need necessary imperfections so that they are always aware of their own humanity and failures. Now, uh, Frankly, I love that. I do too. Um, but to add a sort of another layer of complexity, it's worth remembering that the era that the rabbis are writing in is an era uh, when the idea of Jewish sovereignty or Jewish political power would be impossible. And so when they're talking about the nature of leadership here, they're really talking about moral leadership rather than political leadership. Um, that, right, how often have we encountered a rabbi or a priest or a whomever uh, who holds her himself up as being uh, the epitome of right. morality uh, and just the, the deep moral failure involved in that would seem to be the message here. That, that, that actually, if you truly cannot see yourself as being anything other than perfect, you are not fit for leadership. Yeah. I, okay, I think that should go on a T-shirt, um, and should be sold at seminaries, you know, and <laughs> across the land. Well, it's interesting to me um, that this this flaw, right this this morally questionable, scandalous thing, is from a previous generation, right? It's not Moses or Aaron or Miriam who did this thing. It's, it's the parents. Um, and, and I know that in the context, in the time, uh, that distinction wasn't understood the same way that we might understand it now. But I do think it's interesting that like, it's his parents' sin that makes him unfit, that, that makes him damaged goods in a sense. It it harkens to David, I think then too. Uh, right, who famously is descendant uh, is descended from Ruth, a Moabite woman, uh, and it's of course forbidden in the Torah for the Moabites to become mm-hmm. Jews. So David himself follows this pattern as well. I love that. There, I mean, so I love the way that that scripture works against itself in a way, right? <laughs> like, like that there are these rules set down, and then. Um, there are not only exceptions, but, but exceptions that are so important that they kind of bring the rules into question to begin with. Okay. Uh, shall we finish the priestly section? 
Yeah. Let's right, so the children of Yitzhar are Korach uh, and uh, Nepheg and Zichri. Uh, hopefully, maybe we have listeners out there who are expecting children yes. and can get some inspiration for some less commonly That's used right. biblical names. Uh, the children of Uziel are Mishael and Eltzaphan uh, and Sitri. Uh, and then we are told that Aaron took as a wife... Uh, Elisheva, uh, the daughter of Aminadav, uh, and the sister of Nachshon. Uh, Nachshon ends up, uh, and we'll look at this midrash when we get to it, but he ends up being an important character. There's a, uh, uh, a midrashic telling of the moment at the Red Sea where the Egyptians are closing in on the Jews who are gathered and trapped by the shore. And no one will enter into the sea because, of course, it hasn't parted. And it takes Nachshon walking all the way in step by step um, until the water is above his face wow. for the seas to part. That's, um, that's pretty brave. That's a job probably nobody wants to take, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. 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 So we'll look at that whole midrash when we get to that chapter, but uh, a little precursor here. Um, so we have what we have here is a huge emphasis on the Levites. Um, so kind of the first section of these genealogies are uh, descendants of Joseph. But when we hit the Levites, uh, it kind of takes over and, and takes about half of the passage to name them, which seems to, to show a real preference for the Levites as, as movers and shakers in this story. So they are, right? Our whole leadership of this movement are led by the this tribe. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam uh, all right. come out of this one tribe. And of course, we're told from this experience that the Levites become the priests, though there is a tradition that says they were the priests before this as well. Um, and so we're really talking about the legitimacy of leadership. And that, that maybe is the connection to the rest of chapter six here. But you'll notice as we sort of uh, finish these next couple of verses uh, that the focus is on Aaron. Mm -hmm. It's not on Moses. Because Aaron is, of course, the legitimate priest. And we're creating that legitimacy here. So we start this genealogy with Moses saying, I am not spiritually fit to lead. And then the genealogy is really trying to answer uh, that question that question or that quibble from Moses by saying, one, you're part of this incredibly important family from which all the leaders come. And two, it doesn't matter that much if you're mm -hmm. spiritually fit to lead because Aaron is. So get over yourself. Mm -hmm. am, I, am I right about yeah. that? Okay. Um, okay. And we were in verse 24. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so the sons of Korach, who is a famous character from later on in the Bible, uh, are uh, Asir, uh, Elkanah, Aviasaf, uh, and those are his family members. Uh, and finally, we're told that Aaron's son, Eliezer, uh, took as a wife one of the daughters of Putiel, uh, and she gave birth to Pinchas, another uh, character who's going to be famous uh, later on in the book of Numbers. Uh, and these are the heads of all of the houses of the tribe mm. of the Levites. 
It was the very Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the Israelites from the land of Egypt in their battalions. It was they who were speaking to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the Israelites from Egypt. The very Moses and Aaron. <laughs> Just in case we were confused, in case you're we like, well, wait, which Moses and Aaron are they talking about? Well, it's also connecting it to that genealogy, right? In case we thought for some reason this was a different um, set of them. Yep. Yeah, maybe there were many brothers named Moses and Aaron running around. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like not the Moses and Aaron from the tribe of Benjamin. No, no, it's not Moses and Aaron Goldstein. It's the Levite one. It, it really appeals to me that they're a package deal. You know, that they're um uh f- for a variety of reasons. And and part of it is that um we were talking about Moses doubting himself and and everything um and that that these two are are a package deal and their leadership, um, even though we talk about Moses more, right? We know Moses um, much better, but that, you know, I feel a little bad for Aaron now thinking about it because, you know, historically Moses gets the glory, right? Um, but but here we're really seeing how they they were designed to be, they were intended to be a package deal. Interestingly, the, the rabbinic tradition ends up venerating uh, Aaron. There's this idea that Moses is okay. highly judgmental and Aaron is loving. So there's this whole tradition of uh, stories where Aaron intervenes in people's marriages and in people's familial relationships to fix broken problems. Two brothers haven't spoken for years. Aaron steps in to fix it. A husband and a wife are on the rocks. Aaron steps in to fix it. That Aaron is the one who brings peace. Uh, and we're told that Moses is one who wants to uh, drive wow. a spear through a mountain. This is so interesting because um, one of our reasons for reading Exodus in the diocese is that our bishop, Tom Bridenthal, wrote this article where he was trying to describe the roles of priests and deacons. And he said that deacon's role is to lead the people into the wilderness um, and that the priest's role was to keep the people together while on the pilgrimage sojourn or the, the wilderness sojourn. And uh, I mean, the, the seems to fit with that almost perfectly, right? Like Moses is one who's like goading the people on leading them on. Mm-hmm. And Aaron is the person who's keeping them together. Who's healing relationships. Well, and it speaks to that. We were talking about the, the twin um, aspects of God and how to reconcile those. Um, and, and this same dynamic, uh, connects with that. Yeah. Yeah. Moses is, uh, the one concerned with justice and action and Aaron is the one concerned with mercy. Does that seem right, Daniel? I, I don't know. Right. I, I, I mean, you know, the Jewish tradition is a lot less concerned with right in the sense of uh, some essential nature of these characters and is more concerned with right in the sense of, uh, is there a lesson here for us? Can this teach us something about how we're supposed to live our lives? So I certainly from that perspective, mm-hmm. it seems right. All right. Okay. Well, let's finish, uh, finish this. Yes, please. At the time the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, Egypt's king, everything that I've said to you. But Moses replied to the Lord, Look, I'm not a very good speaker. How is Pharaoh ever going to listen to me? End of chapter. So our chapter almost ends the same as the beginning of the chapter. 
Is the phrase um, in verse 30, I'm not a very good speaker, it does it, is it that uncircumcised of lips thing again? Or else for time, yep. Yeah, so it's exactly, it's as if the genealogy happens and then we are reminded again why the genealogy had to happen. Um, yeah, not in a way that makes Moses seem any more mm-hmm. at peace with his role. So it, it's kind of a cliffhanger. So this entire chapter has been about Moses's crisis of identity and faith. And that has, there have been several answers to that that are offered. Uh, one is the covenantal relationship with God. Another is uh, the genealogy, the human relationship. And yet Moses is still left struggling when the chapter ends, um, which kind of makes sense to me. I mean, if he's a man of action, then these these answers are not going to be satisfying to him. The thing that will be satisfying is when justice comes about, when, when the action is completed. Hmm. Um, I, I'll tell you, my takeaway is I just... I love how human this mm-hmm. Moses is that I, the Moses in my head that I remember from reading this text isn't nearly mm-hmm. as human as the Moses in this text. This is a Moses of doubts and failures and problematic backgrounds and complicated familial relationships. And uh, I love it. I, this, this Moses that we are, reading is much more relatable to me than the Moses of my imagination. And, and we alluded to it before, but this Moses is, um, I mean, speaking as a, a a clergy person, right? Uh, uh, someone who's, um, trying to be a religious leader in a community of faith that this Moses is very, very relatable. Um, and, and speaks to, to my heart in a way that, you know, the, um, the Charlton Heston Moses does not. <laughs> I agree. Totally. Well, uh, thank you for joining us oh, today. Well, Maggie. It was um, wonderful having you Thank you, you for on. having me. It was a lot of fun for me. And I hope that, um, that <laughs> I didn't, uh, derail anything too, too horribly. I, I oh, actually good. think no, you derailed you derail us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus is produced by Daniel Bogart and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness is part of the uh, DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, I can be found online at prayerbookart.com. Maggie, where, where should people look you up if they want to know more about you? I guess they could look me up on the website of St. John's Episcopal Church in Worthington. And that's stjohnsworthington.org. stjohnsworthington.org. And Daniel, where do you want to plug? Uh, so I am going to give a different plug today, uh, or not a plug, and simply say it is the holiday of uh, Sukkot right now. We're right in the end of uh, ah. And it is the festival where we are commanded to reside in these temporary shelters, uh, or to say it differently, we are to ritually place ourselves as a part of this wandering in the wilderness, 
so uh, uh, an invitation to everyone to stop by my house and uh, come sit in the sukkah uh, if you're in the area. Uh, but actually, uh, much more so to just uh, uh, resonate with this idea of being lost in the wilderness. Mm-hmm.